you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 32. Looking forward to preaching to you today. I've had a couple of weeks off, and so I promise I'll keep this message around three hours to make up for all the lost time. But no, if you have uh, Genesis 32 in your Bible, you'll find that toward the beginning. If not, just pay attention to the screen. We'll have the scripture up for you. But I want to give you a guilty admission this morning. that When I was growing up as a kid, I was a wrestling fanatic. Uh, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Macho Man Randy Savage, Sting. Those are some of the names that I love to hear. And as a youngster, you can better believe, every Monday night I was flipping the channels between WCW Nitro and WWF Monday Night Raw. And I know what some of you are already thinking out there. You're thinking, but yeah, Preacher Derek, uh, that's all fake. No, it's not fake. It's choreographed. There's a difference. You take a jump off a top turnbuckle and land on somebody and tell me if it's fake or not. But one wrestler during the 80s and 90s who uh, frequented the spotlight was a man named Lex Luger. There he is, pictured right there. He went by such nicknames as the Total Package. Or the narcissist. Uh, Lex was not only known for his all-American persona, his chiseled physique, but also his trademark surrender move called the torture rack, which I tried many times on my younger sister. Uh, But at the height of his popularity, Lex, whose real name was Lawrence Fole, not only was he a huge superstar, but like many of the pro wrestlers of that time, he lived his life in the fast lane. And in his autobiography, Wrestling with the Devil, he revealed that along with those riches and fame came an ugly dark side. He was an avid steroid user, as you might have guessed. He also became addicted to the pain pills because of the taxing of that industry on his body. He was also an alcoholic. He was, on top of that, a promiscuous womanizer. And all of this led Lex Luger to a breaking point as the injuries and the substance abuse in his life forced him to step away from wrestling in 2001. But, of course, the most formidable opponent that Lex faced wasn't in the ring. It was out. It was the battle with sin and Satan and self. And in 2003, a tragedy struck his life. He wrote about it in his book. He said that he held his girlfriend, Elizabeth Houlette, as she died in his arms from a drug overdose. And then when the authorities began to examine that incident, they looked in his house and they found that he had a number of illicit substances there. So he was charged with 13 felony accounts of drug possession. He was sentenced to parole. He was not able to leave the state of Georgia, but of course, he was caught. He violated his parole, and he ended up in prison in 2006. Lex Luger didn't know it at the time, but his downward spiral from wrestling was actually God's way of bringing him to a point of surrender. Don't you know that God knows how to kick the slats out from under us, doesn't He? He wrote this in his book. He said, quote, My life was full of money full of women, full of drugs and alcohol. I had played before packed arenas. I had everything the world had to offer. And then it came all crashing down. It took a series of crises before I considered turning the steering wheel over to God. Now why do I mention 
Lex Luger because, as you will notice today in Genesis 32, there are many parallels between him and the patriarch we've been studying this summer, Jacob. Both of these men were known for their wrestling prowess. In fact, in Genesis 32, we read that classic story where Jacob spends a night wrestling with God there at the Jabbok River. Now, as we've studied Jacob's life, we have noticed there are two great spiritual landmarks in his journey. The first was at Bethel, and that's where God came to him in a dream. He revealed the ladder coming down from heaven and the angels coming up and down. And essentially, that was Jacob's conversion experience. And the second landmark in Jacob's life happened here in 32 at the banks of the Jabbok River where Jacob will now emerge from this dark night of the soul changed both physically and spiritually. I like the way Bible commentator John Phillips compared these important places and events in the life of Jacob. Here's what he said, quote, Jacob's confrontation with God is the greatest spiritual crisis in his life. At Bethel, he saw the ladder. And at Jabbok, he saw the Lord. At Bethel, he became a believing man. At Jabbok, he became a broken man. At Bethel, he became a son of God. And at Jabbok, he finally surrendered to God. He came away from Bethel with a new spring in his step. He came away from Jabbok with a lasting limp in his walk. At Bethel, he died to sin, but at Jabbok, grappling and clinging to God, he died to self. Now in this message, we're going to explore this episode from the life of Jacob. And we will find out what happened to that wrestler that I mentioned, Lex Luger, a little bit later on in the message. But I think you will see in Jacob many of the same reasons why you and I wrestle and fight against God. Uh, there are some of you today who've been running from God. You've been fighting uh, with God. You haven't surrendered fully your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here today to tell you that's a fight you can't afford to win. And so we're going to notice today three ways that God confronted Jacob and three ways that his life was changed. First off is this. Number one, Jacob surrendered when God confronted him with the past. When God confronted him with the past. We'll start reading chapter 32 and verse 1. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Menahiahim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Watch verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Now let's back up and get the rest of the story. Remember, Jacob has fled from the land of Haran. He's been there for the past 20 years of his life, living under the hand of his cruel uncle Laban. You'll remember it was in the land of Haran where he got two wives, both of them sisters, uh, one named Rachel, the other named Leah. 
And now Jacob's time there in Haran is over. He is making a mass exodus from that place, and he's coming back to his home stomping ground in Canaan. But of course, Jacob's greatest problem still lay ahead of him, and that was his brother Esau. You'll recall that as we studied the early life of Jacob and Esau, that the very reason that Jacob had to run like a scalded dog from his home was because he, uh, through trickery, stole the birthright from his older brother Esau. And you'll remember in Genesis 27, in verse 41, that Esau, Jacob's older brother, made this vow. He said, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. So notice, Jacob has spent the last 20 years of his life as a marked man. He's afraid of the wrath of his brother. He never came home for that reason because there was unfinished business from his past. So when you read the first six verses here, you understand that Jacob, as he comes back home, he is sweating bullets. Several days earlier, we read in verse 6 that Jacob had sent messengers ahead of him to meet Esau he wants peace and he wants reconciliation. But we notice verse 6 tells us that when the messengers return, that we went to meet your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you with 400 men. And so Jacob now is thinking the worst. He says, my brother has come to me with an army of 400. He's going to bear down on me. This is the end. My time has come. And so he thinks that Esau is planning a massacre. Esau has come to finally settle that old score with his brother Jacob. And even though verse 1 tells us that Jacob had seen the angel of the Lord and he'd been given assurance that God was with him, he was still overcome with fear. And so he does what he always has done in his default position. He resorts back to scheming because that's who Jacob is. Notice what verse 7 says, And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So you see that Jacob splits his tribe in two. It's a survival strategy. In the event, he says that Esau does attack, at least not all of my family and resources will be wiped out in one fell swoop. And so Jacob then offers a foxhole prayer. Notice what he says, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Verse 12, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Notice here, God has brought Jacob now to another dead end in his life. He's between a rock and a hard place. And friend, don't you know that you'll find God somewhere in between a rock and a hard place. God has brought Jacob to this place of dependence. He's outnumbered. He's trapped. He's weak. He's helpless. He's at the very place where you and I oftentimes find ourselves in life where we have to ultimately depend on God. 
And that's what he does as he cries out in verses 9 through 12 in that heart-rending prayer. You see, God did this to force Jacob to deal with unfinished business in his life. Jacob had run from home on bad terms with his brother. He had never settled the hurt that he had brought into his family. So Jacob is fearful of Esau's wrath. Here's what I notice. The first principle that we can apply to our lives. You say, Derek, what do I learn from this? Well, here's the first truth that I want you to see, and it's this. Before God will bless our future, He will force us to deal with our past. You see, before Jacob could ever move on and become the man of God that the Lord wants him to be, he has to deal with his biggest fear and his greatest regret from his past, and that is his brother Esau. And the same is true for us this morning. If we could be honest with ourselves, we have to ask, who or what is my Esau? Friend, you see, before you can move forward in your life, you have to go back and confront your past. As painful as that might be, as uncomfortable as that might make you, you've got to face the people that you've hurt. You've got to come clean about your mistakes. You've got to say the same thing about your sin that God's Word says about it. And you have to deal with unfinished business. You can't spend your whole life running from that problem, running from that past, running from that sin. You've eventually got to stop and do business with the past and do business with a holy God. I have a friend who told me about an experience in his life where, oh man, he had a confrontation with something from his past. My friend told me that he was in the grocery store doing his shopping when a, a burly strapping fella approached him and he said, stuck his finger in his chest and said, hey, you're old so-and-so, aren't you? Now, that's never a good way to start a conversation, is it? My friend said to him, uh, yes. Another man said, well, I want you to know I'm, I'm John Doe. You remember me? You probably don't recognize me, but we went to high school together and you made my life a living hell. My friend said he was shocked. And then finally his memory started to catch up and he understood who he was now talking to in the middle of the store. Turns out that was true. The man was a, a victim of my friend's bullying in school. He had picked on this kid and, in high school and, and this man, now all grown up and, and muscle strapped, he, he had not forgotten about that from the past and now he wanted to wring my friend's neck. He said... Looking at him, I could see the fire in that man's eyes. He said, if we had been in a dark alley somewhere, it probably would have been a different story rather than being in the middle of a busy store. Here's what my friend said he did to defuse the situation. He said, sir, stop right there. He said, I'm sorry for the way that I treated you long ago. He said, I want you to know when I was a young man, I was a fool. I was lost I was undone and I was without Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that I'm not the same man today that I was back then. You see, I met Jesus and He changed my life. And friend, I have to ask for apology and forgiveness from you for the way that I lived my life. And I repent of that. My friend said that they had a long conversation there in the middle of the store and they were able to deal with those problems only through the power of Jesus Christ. 
Friend, let me, listen to me today. I know it's not a popular message, but this is what Jacob teaches us. If there's unresolved issues in your family, in your marriage, something from your past that you haven't wrapped up and put to bed, then friend, it will always be a handicap to the future that God has for you. That's why God brought Jacob here to the, back to Canaan, and that's why we have to confront the issues that we've left undone. Because before we can move on, God says, you deal with this past first. So we see number one, Jacob surrendered when God confronted him with his past. But I want you to see how much God loved Jacob and how much God loves you and I in this passage because number two, we see that Jacob did surrender when God crippled him with pain. You say, wow, that's strange, Derek. Strange way for God to show his love through pain. But just hold on and you'll see it. Drop down to verse 22 and, and verse 25 and you'll see this. And that same night, the Bible says, he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and so he wrestled with him. The last time that God has spoke to Jacob in a deep way was 20 years earlier, as I mentioned, at Bethel. That was another crisis in his life when he was fleeing from trouble, fleeing from Esau. And back then, he scared to death, and he was all alone. And now, we've come full circle in Jacob's life, haven't we? Here he is, isolated, outnumbered, living in fear. You know, a lot of people ask questions about this passage. They say, what's going on here? Who is he wrestling with? Some of the older translations might say that it was an angel, or some the newer ones might say that it was a man. I'll tell you what I believe about this passage. I believe that this was the angel of the Lord. In other words, anytime you see that in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's Jesus appearing in the Old Testament before Bethlehem. Remember, in the Trinity, Jesus Christ is always the one designated as the agent to represent God to man. So really, Jacob is wrestling against our Lord here in this passage. And what this showdown proves is that all along, who had Jacob's conflict been with? It had been with God all along. That's really who he was fighting these many years. And by crippling Jacob, the Lord is pushing him to the end of his strength, the end of his self. How many of you have been there before? You tried to do it your way. You thought you knew better than God. You did it the way that you thought was best. And then all of a sudden your world began to fall apart. Uh, maybe you lost your job. Maybe your marriage fell apart. Uh, maybe in the darkness of the night uh, you found out that you were sicker than you realized and you cried out to God and you said, God, where are you in my pain, in my plight, in my situation? And then only to find out that it was in that moment of desperation that God was right there. And had it not been for that moment of desperation, you never really would have cried out to God in the first place. You see, by crippling Jacob, God is pushing him to the end of his self. Here's a man who spent his whole life running, his whole life wrestling, his whole life cheating, and he is realizing now that the only way to victory with God is through surrender. 
Warren Wearsby wrote a great comment about this. Why did God appear to Jacob this way and fight with him? Notice what he says in his commentary. He said, God meets us at wherever level he finds us in order to lift us up where he wants us to be. To Abraham, he appeared as a pilgrim. God came as a traveler in Genesis 18. And to Joshua the general, God came as a soldier. Joshua chapter 5. Jacob had spent all of his adult life wrestling with people. Esau and Isaac and Laban and even his wives. And so it was natural that God came to him as a wrestler. Doesn't God oftentimes come to us with a problem, with a situation, with an ordeal that is tailor-suited for us? That's how He speaks to us. That's how He lets us know that He's there, that He's involved, and that the only way to victory is through surrender. You see, a lot of preachers don't preach this. A lot of them want to focus on prosperity and good times and a full bank account, and life's going to be easy if you come to Jesus. And friend, that's just not in the Bible. And that's not in the life experience that I've lived with my Lord. You see, God uses pain in the lives of His children as a chisel to shape us into Christ-like character. You cannot become godly. You cannot become the person that God wants you to be if life is just an easy bed of roses. You'd never cry out to God. You'd never trust God in a new and different way. You'd never be challenged to walk out by faith. A.W. Tozer said this in one of his books. He said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. My goodness, what a statement. If you study the lives of all the spiritual giants, here's one thing you will notice about them. They all were shaped by adversity and suffering. Paul had his thorn in the flesh. Job sat on the ash heap and picked the scabs and the sores off of his body. Jacob now has his dead leg and Jesus bore his cross. And friend, I want you to see this, that God uses tribulation for our transformation. He uses our pain for our perfection. He uses heartache for holiness. And Jacob began to surrender to God in his pain. And as he dealt with his past, reminded me of a quote that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, Quote, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. <laughs> it's not about church attendance. Not about uh, if I give so much, then I'll earn God's love. Not about trying to be a certain kind of person. It's coming to God as you are, broken with all the problems and all the messes of life. Listen, I've said it many times in this church, there ain't no perfect people allowed. You've got to come with your pain, your heartache, your past. And I tell you what, you bring it to God and God will begin to do a miracle in your life. You'll see Him begin to turn things around in your heart and in your spirit. And no, it may not be a magical overnight transformation, but as you walk with God, you'll find strength that you never knew you could have. You'll find peace that the world can't give. You'll find spiritual resources that'll keep you going down the road another mile. And you'll find God's people will be there to pick you up and say, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. We're in this together. And so it is through that pain that he began to deal with Jacob. You know, there was a great, admirable man named Horatio Nelson in the English Navy years ago. He was known for defeating the French in several decisive battles, most notably the Battle of Trafalgar, if you're a history buff. But 
when Nelson defeated an opponent, he was a part of this generation where they believed that there was honor in victory and in defeat. And so the story is told that after he defeated a, a French ship in a sea skirmish that he had their captain brought on board. And there was going to be a formal ceremony of surrender. And the custom called for the defeated party to hand over their sword and shake hands. Well, the defeated French captain, it is said, walked proudly across the deck of that ship. He was wearing his saber on his side and he offered his hand to Nelson and Nelson stepped back and he pointed to the sword and he said, Sir, he says, your sword first and then your hand. You see, that's the nature of surrender. We can't say, God, I'll try to go to church. God, I'll try and just read my Bible. God, I'll give you everything in my life, but I'm going to hold on to this little thing. Uh, Lord, now, now you're getting overboard, too spiritual. Don't ask me to give that up, friend. In the Bible and in spirituality, it's your sword first and then your hand. You can't do it your way on your terms. It's got to be God's way. And that's what brings us to the second application today. Notice this. Surrender to God is the act of winning by losing. <laughs> it's the act of winning by losing. You give up your autonomy. You give up yourself. You give up your plans, your career, your dreams, and you give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, the Bible says you'll become more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You see, surrender to God brings us to the end of ourselves so that then we can enjoy a new beginning with Him. In God's economy, notice the values of the world system are all reversed. The way down is actually the way up. The way to save your life is to lose it. God uses our personal defeat as the means and the turning point to our great victory in life. There's strength in surrender. There's victory in defeat. There's new life from the ashes of an old dead life. I have to surrender my life and my marriage and my career, even my health and my finances and my future to a living God. But friend, you can't outgive God. When you finally do surrender and give it all to Him, you'll find out He's a loving Father. He's full of grace and mercy. That all He wanted to do the whole time was just bless you but he was waiting for you to let go and let him give you what only he could friend you see surrender is about trusting God in a new way God can I trust you with my marriage God can I trust you with my kids God can I trust you with my job or my career and friend when you lay it on the line and you put it in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ you'll find out when it's in his hands Oh, brother, he knows how to bless it. He knows how to take care of it. He knows how to use it in your life. You see, we have to let go of our tiny grip on things in order to receive the blessing that God wants to give. That's hard to do. There's a trade-off. That's what Jacob was learning. God brought him to this point and he said, Jacob, we've got to deal with your past. We've got to deal with your brother." We've got to deal with your strength, your rebelliousness, your nature of always wanting to do things a deceiving way. So the Bible says God crippled him. Then there was a third way that God confronted him. Notice this. I'm not preaching to anybody today. It's really quiet in here. Notice this, number three. Jacob surrendered when God confronted him with his personality. 
his personality. Notice this, verse 26. I don't know about you, I'm having a good time. I hope you are too. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, what is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and you let my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew or the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The most critical point of this whole wrestling match came here at the end when God asked this old boy, he said, what is your name? Kind of strange, isn't it? The Lord knows who he is. He's not asking it to get information. But you've got to look deeper. Think back with me for just a moment. When was the last time in our text that somebody asked Jacob his name? You've got to go back a few chapters in Genesis chapter 27. Jacob is a young man. He's in disguise. He's there in his father's chamber who's old and blind, old Isaac. And he's there to steal the blessing from his brother through trickery, through deception. And in Genesis 27 verses 18 and 19, notice this. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Notice what God is doing here in the life of this patriarch. The Lord is forcing Jacob to come to terms with his sin and with his true identity. See, the last time somebody asked Jacob, Who are you? He lied about it. Now God's got him held down. God's got him in the leg lock and he surrendered. And in effect, when he says, what is your name? What he's really asking is, Jacob, no more playing games. Who are you in the core of your being? And finally, in that moment of surrender, he gives up and he says, all right, God, you've got me. I'm on the mat. This is old Jacob. I'm coming to terms with who I really am. I'm the trickster. I'm the deceiver. I'm the liar. I'm the usurper. I I am exactly who you say I am. I've been running my whole life trying to do things my way, but here I am admitting to you, God, face to face, I am Jacob. You see the power of that moment? You see, one of the greatest moments of clarity that you and I can have in your life is when we are finally honest before an almighty God and say, Lord, you know everything about me and you still love me, you still choose me, you still want me, so God, here's who I really am. I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, uh, I've done this and I've done that and God, if you can love me with all of this sin, well, Lord, you can have me as I am. That's a great powerful moment in your life when you can open up all the books and say, I ain't playing games no more. I'm not running from my past. This is who I am. God, take me as I am a mess and God, clean me up by your grace. 
You see, the one thing Jacob wanted in his life more than anything is the same thing you and I want. Everybody in this room wants the blessing of God, don't you? You'd be a fool not to want that. Jacob wanted this so bad in his life that he was willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get it earlier on. God has to bring him down a couple notches and said, Jacob, it's not the way you're going to get it, buddy. You want to find out who you are? Find out who I am? Get what I really have in store for you? You've got to do it my way. And you have to come to terms with your heart. That your heart is sinful, that it's broken, that, that you can't fix yourself. That no program or no man-made solution is going to be able to fill the God-shaped vacuum in your heart. You've got to come to Him with all that pain, with all that past, and say, Lord, if you could do something with me, I'm in need of a miracle today. And so here's Jacob. His strength is sapped. His hip is dislocated. All he can do is hold on to God. And that's interesting. Because that's the same way he came into the world. He came into the world holding on to the ankle of his older brother. And now, at this great turning point in his life, he's holding on to God. Not only does the Lord promise to bless Jacob, but notice here in our text, he changes his name. Significant. Changes his name to Israel. The one, that name means one who has striven with God. And then he says, I'm going to name this place Peniel. It's the place where I've seen God face to face. In other words, he's saying, look, I wrestled with God and He didn't strike me dead. He allowed me to walk away from this. Allowed me to live. He came away that day walking like this. When he first went there, he was strong, he was vibrant, he was full of strength. But he walked away with a cane, needing a staff the rest of his life. Why do you think God did that? You think because God's mean? No, no. God's full of love and God's full of mercy. Here's the late last application that I want to leave you with, and I'll answer that question. Notice this. God's greatest blessing comes from the deepest brokenness. Oh, Jacob got the blessing. You're Israel now, not Jacob. You're not who you once were, Jacob. You're the one who's wrestled with God. But it came in that moment of his brokenness. That moment of clarity and honesty before an almighty God. You see, he was broken to be blessed. And that handicap, oh, that handicap that he got there that night was going to go with him the rest of his life because the Bible says in Hebrews eleven twenty one in the hall of faith, it says there, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped, watch this, leaning on his staff. Even up to the last of his days, as he blessed his grandsons, the Bible says he still walked with God, he worshipped God, but he did it leaning on that staff because he couldn't do it in his own strength. And friend, I'm telling you today, you won't find that strength, you won't find that peace, you won't find what you're looking for until you learn to lean on Almighty God. Jacob walked away from that place. He was crippled, but friend, he was crowned a prince, one who has striven with God. And for the rest of his life, Jacob knew, oh, I've got to learn to lean on God, not on my own understanding, trust in His ways, and He will direct my paths. Oh, he had the blessing of God, but everywhere he went, he walked like this. You know what that is? One day he had grandsons. 
Don't you know, curious little children came up and tugged on his robe and said, Grandpa, why do you walk like that? (laughs) Hey, old man, where'd you get that limp from? And it was an opportunity for Jacob to then tell the story of Genesis 32 all over again. Let me tell you how I got this limp. And then he could talk about wrestling with God. And then he could talk about the Lord changing his name and talk about surrendering to God. You see, listen to me. The reason why God sends us into those valleys, those long dark nights of the soul, the reason why God allows us to walk away from from life situations with a limp is so that someday we'll have a testimony to tell. Let me tell you about what God did for me when I faced cancer. Let me tell you about what my Jesus did for me when I, my marriage was on the rocks, when they handed me a pink slip and I didn't know what I was going to do the next day. Oh, I walked away with a limp, but I'm crippled and crowned and I can tell you a testimony of my God's goodness through it all. You see, I was broken, but now I am broken bless God gave me the test so he could give me the testimony somebody better say amen in the house of God today oh every time he moved he had that thorn in his flesh oh wouldn't you know the arthritis set in on old Jacob old later on in his years grandpa why do you walk that way old man what's wrong with you where'd you get that gimp from you see friend here's what I want you to know This is a battle he couldn't afford to win. And there's a battle you and I can't afford to win. And that's with surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. You want to have it your way, he'll let you have your way. But you won't have any joy. You won't know heaven. You won't know Jesus. And you won't have any peace and hope when it comes to the end of life. Oh, but you surrender to Him. You'll find a friend so faithful, He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll be with you through cancer. He'll be with you through hard times. He'll be with you through COVID and beyond. And when you're standing there on the shores of eternity, He'll be a friend to say, Welcome in. You're crippled, but you're crowned now. Remember our old friend Lex Luger? You know what happened to him? He had a lot in common with old Jacob. He ended up in jail. Jail was like his Jabbok River. This strong man who could lift people above his head and body slam them. This man who lived in the fast lane. He said, my life was a total train wreck and a disaster and I didn't know how to fix it anymore. That's the best place to be. He started attending chapel. He befriended a pastor. And after listening to a sermon one day on Jesus' parable of the wise man who built his house upon the... The rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Lex said, I understood that I had built my life on the quicksand of this world and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ in Cobb County Jail. You say, wow, what a great story. Do you know what happened to him when he got out of jail? He fell back into his old life. Do we do that as Christians? Yeah, it happens. He was bench pressing one day in the gym and something went wrong and he was paralyzed from his neck down. He said, all my wrestling career I had relied on my strength and now I was totally helpless. And out of that time of being paralyzed and broken came one of the greatest spiritual lessons in his life. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote about struggling with a thorn in the flesh. He said, I understood what he meant now. And I knew God was saying to me, my strength will be exemplified in your weakness. 
You know what God did with this man? This former drunk and drug addict and steroid user, womanizer, he saved him. He did a miracle in his body, restored strength to his legs. He can walk again, but he walks with a limp. You can look him up on YouTube. He's an evangelist now. He goes around telling them of what Jesus did in his life and how God broke him so that God could ultimately bless him. And you know, there's only one who can do that. And his name is Jesus Christ. You know, there's a, a great parallel between Jesus and Jacob in this scene. And I'll leave you with this. Jesus and Jacob are alike in this respect. Both were crippled but crowned. Jesus was crippled on the cross, was He not? The Bible says in Psalm 22, He said, All of my bones were out of joint. They have driven nails through my hands and through my feet. Jacob was given a blessing. But you know what Jesus was given? A crown of thorns. Jacob walked with a handicap the rest of his life. He walked with a scar, if you will. And when Jesus emerged victorious from that battle that he fought on the cross with sin and Satan, did he have scars? Oh yeah, he had scars. He said, touch and see that I am risen. Next time you and I see Jesus, we'll see the scars. We'll also see His crown. Because Jacob wrestled with God and he was given a new name. And the Bible says that after Jesus wrestled with sin and won the victory for you and me, He's been given a name that is above every name, that name under heaven, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you know this Jesus today? Oh, He was crippled. He was broken. He was crucified. But today, He's crowned in glory and honor. And friend, before you and I can be crowned with new life and hope and peace, we have to be broken. We have to be crippled before God. We have to admit who we really are. We have to deal with our past and say, God, here I am. 